GrowCFO is where finance leaders grow together. Join thousands of like-minded professionals using GrowCFO to access the combined knowledge and experience of the finance leader community. You can join us today at growcfo.net. Hello and welcome to the GrowCFO show. I'm your host, Kevin Appleby, and I've got a returning guest again today, Susanna Serrano-Davey. So, Susanna, welcome back to the podcast. Thank you, Kevin. Hello. So, Susanna, P&L account. We're always focused on what's the profit, what's the bottom line, and it's probably one of the most important things we come along and talk about every time we go into a business team meeting. But what's wrong with the (laughs) P&L? Well, where where shall we start, Kevin? No, I think let's agree first on the basics. Totally agree with you. The PNL is a a key tool for us uh, in finance and also for businesses. I think if you if you handle it well, it just can guide you in the right uh, direction. But like everything in life, I think there's no ultimate truth. So we need to take the PNL. I think sometimes with a pinch of salt. And it's by understanding the context that surrounds uh, the PL or the results or, or the, the types of um, budgetary elements that we might use, like cost centers, like divisions, etc. If we can just see the wider picture, then we'll, we'll be able to use the PL, but not follow it blindly, which is yes. what I think sometimes we can I do. I think the first problem with PL, Susanna, probably starts with. A history lesson. Go on. And I think, you know, years and years and years ago, we didn't have any computers. We had great big ledgers. And a lot of manual effort went into accounting. So you could only have really one version of the company's results. And it came from all of those journal entries, carefully handwritten with a quill pen, in this great big leather-bound book, Charles Dickens style, you know, you can yeah. just see Scrooge and company working through the, the ledgers and so on. And some rules were developed, but who were the major people that pushed the rules? Well, number one, I think, were the tax authorities, because the tax people wanted the tax profits. So there had to be some rules about what was a profit? What wasn't a profit? What could you write off against the profit? What couldn't you write off against the profit? Um, and then there were investors. What did mm. investors look at? Investors looked at balance sheets and profit and loss accounts. And of course, they need to be comparable. Exactly. They need to be comparable. So I think all of the pressure to do things the way we do them today, to do them the way we we all learned about when we were mm-hmm. training to be accountants, all came out of that history lesson driven by tax men and investors. I agree. But not the management team of the company. So you're, you're putting together a, uh, a set of results that are ideal for those external people. But now probably 95% of the time you're using them internally to drive the business. And that, that to me is the fundamental flaw in the PL account. I agree. And, and as you said earlier, going back to the technology and the heavy books that you couldn't carry on your own. Now we have with modern systems, you can have different reporting units. So there's nothing really stopping us from having 
shadow journals, shall we say, on a separate reporting unit that can effectively adjust uh, traditional PNL, which we do need for all the reasons we've discussed, but also to make sure we're looking at the things that are really important to, to, to our particular business. So absolutely, Kevin, I, I agree. So accounting rules are the first, first issue, I think, Susanna. Um, I remember when I was training, we, we always got, we always started off with the four fundamental concepts around which all the accounting standards are based. Mm-hmm. And it was all, always um, the prudence concept and the matching concept. And there was always conflict between the two. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Now, and I suppose the get out of jail card that us accountants have always taken as well is the fair view. Ultimately, that's like, in case of that, you can always cling on to that uh, to try and make it more... Um, relevant, but it is it is very difficult. Uh, I can think of for a, one of the businesses I worked for, for instance, uh, we used to spend a lot of money on client acquisition. Yeah. I mean, millions every month. And but of course, the accounting rules didn't allow us to, to capitalize some of that cost and to spread it over time because our average client had a, a life cycle of two and a half years, and we knew they were profitable at a certain point in time. So, of course, internally, we wanted to, to report that, uh, whereas having spoken to the external auditors and tried really hard to find a way to justify that from an accounting reporting perspective, we failed miserably. So we did that just that. We had effectively uh, our bookings for um, following the accounting standards. And then we had, as I said, this this particular view that overlaid um, when we were talking about management reporting for for those that particular division of the business. Yeah, and I we're talking about there primarily what what you might put on the balance sheet and call a fixed asset. Now you wanted to take those those acquisition costs, the, the costs of researching the the companies you might be acquiring the cost of doing some of the early stages of a transaction mm-hmm. and you'd want to put them all on the balance sheet and wipe them off over probably a decent period you were getting profits into the organization from that company um there are lots of other areas where we might be doing similar things Susanna so I I think we end up spending a lot of money on things that are of lasting value to the business but aren't dealt with as fixed assets. You know? A fixed asset seems to be something in this that historically has been quite tangible. And you, can, you can generally go touch it, feel it, see it, and it lasts a long time and it costs a lot of money. Or try and calculate its future value, that's in the case of uh, intangibles. Yes. I guess what we're saying is that we're getting a bit out, outdated, no? Don't yes. you think? I think so. I think so. Now, I've got two books sitting on my bookshelf. Um, first one is 24 Assets by a guy called Daniel Priestley. And the other one is Evergreen Assets by a guy called John Lamerton. And actually, John was a guest a few weeks ago on the Next 100 Days podcast. We actually interviewed him about the book. Um, but both books talk about assets that you should build in different parts of your business. 
that are all about either generating future income mm-hmm. or streamlining and easing the process of doing business. They've all got, well, John's pure title, Evergreen. He's looking at the particular asset because it lasts and lasts and lasts. It'll generate you leads this year, next year, the year after. Mm-hmm. And the thing is, most of these assets are digital. An awful lot of them come out of what our marketing team's doing, what our sales team's doing. They're building us up email lists. They're building us up marketing collateral. They're building us up web pages. They're building us up downloadable PDFs that come off the website and then generate leads. And they don't just generate leads this week. They generate them next week, next year, the year after. But none of those things are actually capitalized in the business. And I'll be a bit cynical here, Susanna. No, no, I totally agree. But then to me, the obvious question is, how can we possibly keep up with the the speed of change we're experiencing in the world at the moment? Because some of the examples you have just given us are very relevant, but I'm sure in the next couple of years, that list of examples will grow. So... Yeah. Well, okay. Let, let's have let's have a look at some of the things that we do have sitting there as fixed assets in our business, Susanna. So, how many how many of our listeners have got a, an office block sitting in uh, London buildings on their balance? An empty, an empty, an empty office block. Okay. How many people have got a fleet of company cars on their balance sheet while the entire sales team's working from home? I know. Okay, so keep up, with, keep up with events. Yeah, I, I totally get your argument that says the digital stuff's moving really quickly, really quickly, and you've got to keep changing it. But you know, we've capitalized some stuff that probably has no value. Mm-hmm. Well, I, you- I'd refer to them not as fixed assets. I really think they're fixed liabilities. Because Absolutely. What, Those buildings you, you've, yeah, you've got to maintain the buildings. Yeah, yeah, I agree. Clean the buildings. You've got to heat them. You've got to pay rates on them. You've got to put petrol in all your cars. You've got to repair them. You've got to tax them to put them on the road. But then what we're talking about is that we need to take not just the profit and loss account, but the fixed asset section of the balance sheet with a massive pinch of salt. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. And what's one of the biggest charges on your P&L account normally? Depreciation mm. from the fixed assets that aren't really assets and aren't really generating you any money. <sighs> I know. Yeah. And the thing is, Suzanne, I think those those things that Daniel Priestley and John Lamerton in their books refer to as assets. Now, the concept, the accounting concept of prudence says that we've written them off straight mm-hmm. away. We've charged them to profit in the period that we spent the money, not the period that they generated any income. Yeah. But I suppose not. I wouldn't imagine a lot of companies are at the moment writing off their buildings, are they? Or creating big provisions for future maintenance of buildings. No, exactly. So take the PL with a pinch of salt. But okay, I'll get off my soapbox at this stage, Susanna. Okay. What about, and this this is in your experience as a as a CFO, how many times have you been under pressure? to show a good picture in the PL. <laughs> mm-hmm. 
Are you are you really asking me that question? Yes, I'm really asking you that question. Because I Susanna. know this is a topic that I've, I've sort of uh, always wanted to talk about, and at the same time, really I'm reluctant to talk about it because it's almost like the white elephant in the room that us accountants have to live with. And I think we, uh, when we first come across that pressure, it could be quite early on in our careers as well, not just as a CFO. It can be when you're just someone working, uh, I don't know, doing uh, reconciliations or something doesn't quite make sense. So I think it, it that pressure or the, the, the effects of that pressure to, to report a pretty picture really can touch many different roles within the finance team. And to me, Again, this is my experience. Um, you go to you. You become an accountant, right? We've we've got ICAW or ACCA, whatever you do. They really hammer to you the importance of ethics, the importance of being a solid professional with values and and really doing things as we ought to do. Especially if you come from from one of the you know from the audit background you've got that ingrained in the back of your in the back of your mind and then you you turn up at your uh, company job and then suddenly all those boundaries get blurred. Yes. It's it, not black and white in reality. It's not black and white and it can create quite a lot of anxiety I think as you go through um, experiences that make you feel more or less uncomfortable personally I I feel that I was kept on the right side of the gray rather than the dark side of the gray but but that's certainly what it's not easy it's, it's really not easy and I have I remember one example of um, a business that I worked in we had a massive massive uh, hole in the balance sheet and I spent, I was um, director of financial control there. And I, I, I knew fairly on in the role that it, things went right in, in one of our key uh, ledgers, reconciliation wise. And anyway, I went on these uh, very carefully, but on a, on, on, I went into a process that took a year and a half from identifying the problem, trying to persuade um, senior stakeholders that actually this is something we ought to be looking at before the auditors found it. And in the end, the business dealt with it quite well. We created the project to clean it all off. And, but boy, was that hard because at the beginning, the reaction is like, no, no, you can't possibly be right. And, and I, I, I remember in certain meetings, observing the behavior of the different people and you could tell it was the elephant in the room and and people that um were supposed to be having these professional conscience as it were were looking sort of looking for excuses or looking for reasons to justify something that wasn't justifiable and so I think that's one of our biggest challenges as finance directors when you're managing your CEO and the team is to say, okay, we can be, we can look at different perspectives of this particular uh, topic or balance or income or, or revenue stream, but let's not go so far that we get ourselves into trouble. Um, and I, to me, that's one of the toughest things a finance professional needs to do. I don't know about what you think. I, I think I'd agree with you there. And, and 
I've never been in the position too much with the actual results of the business, but I've certainly been in that position with putting a budget together. And I can I can think particularly if I go back to my time in um, as European business accountant in ICI's plastics business, we used to go through an exercise every year, which is called well, some folk called it autumn budget review, others called it annual budget review, but it was generally mm-hmm. referred to as ABR. And you you effectively you took a projection of the business for the next four current year results and look four years out each year, and. Yeah. We take it to from plastics. We take it to petrochemicals and plastics division. We were then the division was part of chemicals and polymers group, and chemicals and polymers in turn were part of main ICI. So there's a huge matrix structure there. And of course, you did a budget round. Everything got added up, and you got some challenge at each level. My experience invariably was ah you're not producing a big enough profit there. Go away and think again. And we'd go away and think again. But of course, that would happen as the division reviewed it. But then the division's budget, once that had been amended, the division's budget would get reviewed further up the tree. Yeah. Division would be told, you're not making a big enough profit. Go away and think again. So we'd get told, even though we'd amended the budget once, oh, amend again. How are you going to make a bigger profit? And it got us into a position where we were constantly being pressured to put unrealistic budgets together. Totally agree. And you could classically, you're sitting there at the end of quarter one, the following financial year, you knew that you had to write a pretty convincing variance report on why the actuals were so different to what you'd put in the budget. Um, And you were going into this fairly elaborate explanation of what potentially was had gone wrong when mm. actually you could have summed it up quite easily in one sentence. The budget was wrong. <laughs> yeah. The, the actuals are actually spot on in line with the original budget we gave you. You asked us to change the budget. <laughs> I know. I mean, but I think there's two types of pressure. There is the pressure around less, uh, you know, let's be optimistic with our forecast. And then the other type of pressure is let, let's not recognise things at the right time. Yes. And that can be around moving things from one year to the other. It can be about trying to build a picture that a particular balance is recoverable when it isn't, and a lot of different scenarios. And I, I think it just creates, um, it's almost like a an illness in an organization. I have worked, I've been lucky throughout my career to work in different organizations. So I have seen a fair amount of uh, different landscapes in this sense, whereas some of them are a little bit like uh, super overly, overly black and white and life is not like that actually. And on the other, at the other end of the spectrum, a little bit of a wild west scenario where different, different divisional directors would have in their pocket, either a million up or a million down, just waiting for a moment of need. Um, so I think if we go back to our topic of today of the PNL, I think it's all about finding the right balance. Of yes. course, you're always going to have some judgmental areas that you could lean one way or another. But let's just be mindful that ultimately we're here to do a solid um, 
we we have one of the thing, phrases that comes to mind when I think about my training was that duty of care that we have, you know, and um, and is is we have a responsibility, I think, because also when when you're effectively burying your head in the sand, because that's what it means really for the business. If you're if you're not reporting what's really happening because of that push to deliver good results, you're only delaying something. Uh, you're only delaying the inevitable. So it's, it's, it's better, I think, to try and just find that balance, not go too far into, oh, we'll just tell them what they want to hear because the conversation can only get harder and harder at times goes by. Yeah, and that, that's probably one of the biggest lessons I've learned throughout a career is no surprises. Don't tell folk what it is you think they want to hear. The the sales guys, the the, the, the CEO and so on, will we'll always want to hear that we've had a great month. We'll always want to hear that there's a, there's a good profit. And you will be tempted to rose tint things occasionally. I agree. Uh, and if you do it, and things aren't as good as they perhaps think. Well, all you're doing is storing up a problem for a later day that's probably getting bigger and bigger and bigger as each I, month goes by. But to me as well, there is a massive difference between the businesses that are self-contained. I, what I mean is where the ownership, the investors are very close to the management. That happens less. Because I think that's right. Yes, <laughs> there is less opportunity. You're not going to. Uh, there's an exp- expression in the Spanish that says, "Let's not don't cheat yourself at playing solitaire." And I don't know. I can't think of the English equivalent now. But effectively, there's no point in fooling yourself yeah. when you close. But when you're in an organization where you have a lot of layers, you have the country and you have uh, the group and you have uh, EMEA and you have APAC or whatever it is, you yeah. end up creating all these conflicting views and that those are the businesses in my view that are most vulnerable to what we're talking about yeah and that was certainly our case in ICI we had multiple multiple layers of of management and financial control and it was definitely that that caused most of the problems yeah but Susanna I think another problem with the the P&L account is the way it's set out, the way the way things are classified. Yeah. I agree. And that probably goes back to our own ledger systems. We would have a general ledger account called stationary. We'd have a general ledger account called travel. We'd have a general ledger account called bank interest. Uh, and we'd, we'd put transactions in there because of what they were rather than why they've been incurred. I agree. You 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 look at the PL account, you get a, a lovely long list of all of these categories of spend, and you think, oh, travels up a lot this month. Stationary's down. Oh, that's good news. Stationary's mm. down. Um, but why? Why? <laughs> yeah. It tells you what you spent the money on, but it doesn't tell you who spent it or why. Uh, well, I suppose the who in most companies now is taken care of through the cost center structures. Yes. Yeah. And I think the conversation there is going back to the technology point that we, we discussed earlier. Modern systems are fantastic. I just uh, implemented in a recent project that I've been working on a, a new finance system. 
and the uh, the amount of dimensions we could have was endless right yes. we could have reported by uh, by country by uh, what we call our, our pillars anyway we we could have reported in a much better way but ultimately i think for me that some of the choices we made as a team is that you need to keep the balance make sure that it's then it's then doable because actually when you post a transaction if you have five different pieces of uh, di five dimensions um, so that you can record what you're talking about in terms of going beyond the who or the what and going into the whys. It's unless you do it well, there's no point. So here the challenge, I think, is defining a better way that I know you have some ideas and you can share with us in a moment. But also how do we make it? How do we do it in practice when it comes to posting those journals? Yeah. And the thing is, if, if you look at those categories of spend, you've got you've got on your PL account. You can have underspends and you can have overspends. But does that necessarily correspond with good or bad? And let's let's take travel for a moment. And let, let's assume it's normal okay. time. People are traveling. So suddenly this month you had a budget of £10,000 for travel, but you spent £15,000. you have got an overspend. All our accounting training and so on would say, oh, adverse variance, adverse variance. That's not good. That's not in the bottom line out. Then you go and dig into it and you find out, oh, well, we got this new opportunity. We got this great new possibility with, to work with another company. We had to have these meetings. We had to take 10 people across the, to the United States to sort it out. Are you well, you travel budget's high. So, you know, it's probably travel being overspent is actually probably good news i agree but um, how do you how do you how can we bring that view how, how would you suggest we start changing the way in which we we look at we classify things well to me susanna the the answer is all in having an economic model of the business and I absolutely love activity-based costing or output costing, or not necessarily full-blown, which can be hugely administrative and take a lot of big systems, but really understanding what stuff, what processes and activities cost you. Um, now where do you start on this one? We've, we've done a fair bit of work on this in, in various workshops we've had in Grow CFO. I was running a, a workshop in our cat, Catalyst for Change workshop last week, we were talking all about how do you take cost out of the business? And part of that was understanding where the cost's coming from. Mm -hmm. And I think if I look back over a career as a, a management consultant, being the finance guy on a change project, you know, generally the question was asked, well, how much does whatever it is cost us? How can we take cost out of that process? And take shared services, for instance. Uh, you'll, you'll be asked the question, well, how much does it cost us to process an invoice? Well, where's that line in the P&L account? Yeah. What does it cost you to process an invoice? Well, there's, there's a lot of people's time goes into it. In fact, most of it's people's time. Uh, but which people? Uh, is it just your accounts payable team? Well, your accounts payable team 
kept the systems running along, made sure things were going through there, or made sure that three-way matching was taking place. But those transactions that didn't process automatically, mm. didn't three-way match and get paid automatically, well, who was involved in those? Actually, it wasn't yeah. the accounts payable team. It was the people that placed the order in the first place. Yeah. It was the, the person you now want to authorize a, a, a difference, the original transaction, because you made a change to it. It was the person that ordered at the wrong price and the price then went up. Mm. The cost of processing an invoice ends up being all over the business. Yeah, and I think as well, uh, this is why, why we, we love to think uh, that our financial statements, the ones we're responsible for, are so important. Actually, more and more, I always come to the conclusion that you need to have a really solid set of information and metrics that look beyond yes. just the, 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 the average or the, the traditional P&L model. You have to look at a bigger picture that have, has other metrics that helps you contextualize that travel, for instance, because if you look at an overall pack, there's okay, we've got some overspend on travel, as you just said, but then you have in there, in that landscape, also something that is telling you that you want new business or that yeah. you're tracking potential clients, then you're getting a balanced view, even if your, your ledger is not helping you or we're not able to, to give a, a really balanced view only through our PL or only through our accounting. Yeah, and th things like customer service costs. You know, I'd want to know, and again, I'd probably, if I was doing this as a one-off exercise, I'd go and talk to the people that are doing customer service and say, okay, in broad brush terms, and I don't need this to be totally accurate, but take your, take your typical day, what percentage of your time do you spend on the, these? Well, I'd probably say, what mm -hmm. activities mm -hmm. do you do to start off with? And then I'd say, so what percentage of time do you spend on each of these activities? And then I'd have a, a reasonably broad feel of saying, this, this person costs me £50,000 a year to employ. Okay, this person is fairly typical of the three other people in this team. So, okay, we've got a cost of £150,000 now. Oh, they do 20% on that, 30% on mm -hmm. this, 45% on this. And now they're probably round figures. And they're going to give me a very good understanding of, okay, I've spent £150,000 on this team. Overall, £20,000 is for this activity. £50,000 mm. is for this activity, or I could ask the question another way, which customers do you spend the time on? Yeah, because it, it won't all originate yeah. within service. It might be yeah. that... Which products do you spend the time on? And I can then start getting a very good idea. Oh, of that £150,000, well, actually, this very small group of customers generated the activity that was responsible for most of the time of that team. So actually, this customer... 95% of my customer service cost is down to this one customer. Now, hang on a minute. What's the, how much revenue is that customer generating? But how's that customer? It's not as profitable as we think. Exactly, exactly. And I've got a lovely example of activity-based costing I use in the, in the classroom for actually teaching mm -hmm. the concept. And it's a very simple company. There's only two products. There's one that's a very, very simple, very low cost, 
very high volume product. And there's another one that's very high price, huge margin, but don't sell very many of them. And we start off with the scenario that says, and the sales team has been told to go out to the customers and really push the high value, high margin product, because it's going to take the business where it needs to. And we're seeing a lovely situation in the PL account, the top line of the PL account, revenues growing, gross margins growing. But for some strange reason, as these two lines grow, the bottom line profit is getting smaller. Mm. And then we go into, well, hang on a minute. So we had this customer service team and we allocated the cost of the customer service team across the product cost of each of these lines. So hang on. Yeah, the, the huge margin product isn't getting a huge amount of customer service cost. Oh, now let's have a look what the customer service team's doing. Well, actually, this, huge, this high margin product, it, it's not very reliable. Mm. It's generating a load of customer complaints. Oh, we're having returns. Oh, we've got a stack of people that are in on yeah. temporary contracts processing the returns. Oh, hang on a minute. So the what, cost of this product what we do is this? a substantial because... amount higher than we thought. <laughs> so we're going through the conversation and we're saying, okay, uh, take the PL with a pinch of salt. There may be things that are not on your PL, but there should be, like for instance, yes. skeletons in the closet in the in the in the balance sheets. Um, there may be other things you want to take into account, which is where your management view doesn't align with the traditional accounting standards. We're talking about the pressures uh, to come from that come from outside to report. The, the right picture and now now you throw in that actually we need to be looking at a whole lot of different things as well to, to value something so what shall we do with our PL? what do you think uh, could effectively bring because we can't just dump it right so we can't get rid of it we with all its flaws it serves a purpose so what do you think could be uh, overall uh, conclusion from this this discussion, Ken. I think you've got to to recognise that your P and L is the key document your investors will be looking at, uh, tax authorities will be looking at, and you've got to report it in a set of accounts. So I think it's it's got to be right, but I, I think the main message to finance is that you've then got to step behind the numbers. Yeah, and you've got to make sure the business understands that the profit at the bottom of the P&L account is less important than how the overall economics of the business are going. I agree. And you need to look at the context, the overall context. The overall context. Just that, that target. Yeah. Yeah. And I dare say we could go on and talk about this for, for hours. I know, I know. But, but it's... I think we've got to the end of our, our allotted time for this podcast, Suzanne. We have. I think it's it's been quite thought provoking. So, thank you hugely for joining me on this week's podcast. Thank you. I always enjoy our chats. Mm-hmm.